Welcome back. So this week we're doing something a little different just because there's so much to talk about as we end Exodus and start Leviticus that we are going to do this episode in two parts uh, just so it's a little more digestible for all of you at home. And so part one was covering the end of Exodus from chapter 35 to 40. And then this part will be a little bit of the book of Numbers because I do actually have a couple comments about that. And then the first eight chapters of Leviticus. But a summary of the first eight chapters of Leviticus. Now, the book of Exodus ended with a problem. The tabernacle, this place for Yahweh to dwell with his people, had been crafted and he had come to it, but his people could not approach it. The glory of the Lord was too great and Moses himself could not enter the tabernacle. And so the book of Leviticus addresses this problem. You see, Yahweh is holy, which means that he is different than anything or anyone else. His holiness encompasses his righteousness and his justice and much more. And the people of Israel have sinned. And that means that they cannot approach him without serious consequences. And so if his people are going to be able to approach him and worship and fellowship with him, they need to be reconciled with him and made holy as well. And Leviticus is going to tell us how they can do that. And so Leviticus starts with five different kinds of ritual sacrifices that will help purify the people of their sin and make them holy. And these sacrifices break down into two specific types. The grain and the fellowship offerings are a way of saying thank you to Yahweh for the blessings he has given. The burnt, the guilt, and the sin offerings are ways of expressing repentance for unintentional sins and asking for forgiveness from Yahweh. And these sacrifices are reminders of Yahweh's grace and his justice. They are reminders of Yahweh's expectations from his covenant people, and also that he understands that they are imperfect, and so he provides a way to atone or cover for the sins that they commit. Some things to notice as you read. I want you to put yourself in the place of someone offering these sacrifices, and imagine that what that experience would have been like. As you go, you... You bring an animal for the sacrifice, you place your hand on the animal, and then the animal is killed, and then cooked, and then eaten. What would that have been like? I also want you to notice the role of the priests. The priests represent Yahweh, and they represent Yahweh's people. So they represent the people to Yahweh, and they represent Yahweh to his people. They fulfill both of those roles. And so what we're seeing here is a relationship happening between Yahweh and his people. And so the, the sacrifices themselves seem to be constructed as something like a meal being had between Yahweh and his people. Food is brought, and then the representatives of Yahweh eat the meal sometimes with the person who brought it. In other words, Yahweh is sharing a meal with them. And that is, that is fellowship-inducing. Um, or the, the meal is brought and given to Yahweh. Now, that happens a lot in the ancient world, but the, the uniqueness here is that it's not just food given to a, to, a, to a god, it's that the god shares that meal with his people, and that's, that's important. And then, after this, after the sacrifices, we get the ordination of the priests in the beginning of their priestly ministry. They are washed, anointed, sacrifices made for their sins, and they are covered with the priestly garments. It's an incredible story, and we see the priests roll through the sacrifices, and then we see their ordination here at the beginning of Leviticus 8. Because up to this point, Moses has been kind of fulfilling the role of priest, and now Aaron and his sons will have that instead. So there is a short bit of Numbers, the book of Numbers. Sure. Uh, if we can 
we can talk a little bit about that. So Numbers chapter 7 is probably one of the hardest for me personally to read because it is the uh, donation of materials for the Levites from the chieftains of the tribes, mm-hmm. which is important. But then it details what each of the chieftains bring, and it is the same thing. They all bring the same thing, and that is told to us in detail 12 times. Uh huh. And so why? Why is this related to us like this? Um, I think that one of the things that's so important here is that we are we are seeing that there is a responsiveness. So as these verbatim uh, passages in Exodus and here in Numbers are being done, one of the purposes is to see obedience, mm-hmm. right? So, so God's people as a whole are obeying exactly what he's told them. But also we're seeing here equality from the different tribes of, Jew- of, of Israel. Um, each of these people is bringing the exact same thing. Mm-hmm. And I think that that's an important, an important aspect. And so maybe an ancient Israelite, no matter where they're from, which tribe they're from, you know, because Judah and Levi get a lot of airtime, you mm-hmm. know, Benjamin to some extent does too. So, you know, our poor uh, Zebulun people. <laughs> <laughs> or know, Issachar. Or the tribe of Dan. I was reading Revelation 12 today when it numbers the 144,000. The tribe of Dan isn't even mentioned. Uh-huh. So the, the Danites who are like, what about us? You know, they, they hear this uh, read or that story told, you know, and it's like, we're part of this too, you know, just as much as the rest of them. You know, we've, we've kind of uh, contributed just as much and... And uh, so I can I can understand from a kind of a so- social perspective why it would be important for every single tribal chieftain to be affirmed that they brought the same thing. You know that helps me read it, but it's still it it's, it's still, still a little difficult. That's still. Difficult. And you're the one who tends to like the uh, the detail I, stuff. I read the names with great relish, all that, but number seven, that is hard not to skim. It is hard not to skim. Mm-hmm. Uh, something else here, numbers, and this will come up in other places. But since this is the the first time we've kind of hit hit upon it, I wanted to talk about it. Numbers chapter nine, uh, and verse fourteen, talking about the some rules for the Passover, which are great. But the the thing I wanted to focus on is at the end of verse fourteen, it says, well, earlier it says that foreigners, sojourners, are allowed to partake of this. They just have to obey the rules. And then it says at the end, one statute shall you have both for the stranger and for the native of the land. You know, again, I think one of the caricatures of the Old Testament that we get is just that, oh, you know, so obsessed with whatever the rule keeping and, and, and driving people away. And I mean, that is happening. We'll talk about that. But that the doors were open, like the doors were standing open for people to join in, yeah. you know, join Absolutely. in the family they just had to follow the rules, which, again, some of our modern sensibilities are like, well, but we should be able to do whatever we want. And uh-huh. a lot of the tensions our society is facing right now is over this exact issue. Lo and behold, you can't just do whatever you want. <laughs> you, know, you know, there might and even be fact, a book of the Bible where fact, everyone does what's right in, in fact, their own eyes. You ought not do whatever That's you right. want. <laughs> Both of those things are true. So I just wanted to touch on that. Yeah, absolutely. That's it from numbers. We can go back to Leviticus. Okay. There's not really much here to talk about. So, <laughs> and I may have just misread this, and I just mm. want you to kind of clarify. My impression was that the burnt offering was not necessarily connected to repentance and forgiveness. And so I'd like to just know more about why you... Uh, said that and and just the significance of the the burnt offering the purpose of the burnt offering is not for an individual's 
particular sins. It's the the general sins of the people that are that are being dealt with with the burnt offering. And so it's supposed to be continued up at as I mean the the fire must be burning on the altar continuously. It must not go out. The idea is that the burnt offerings are going to be offered regularly by his people, not in response to specific failures, not in response to, um, you know, a, a specific breaking of, of the law, but as a general cleansing or a covering over of the, the sinfulness of his people. Hmm. It's needed for the continual reconciliation of God's people. Maybe there's a distinction Leviticus is drawing between like the individual failings and acts of wickedness that we might do, and then a general state of sinfulness. Yes, and both need to be dealt, dealt with. with. I think so. Hmm. Okay. Or also just so the there's no offering here for intentional misdeed given, mm-hmm. right? It's all for unintentional sins, and the thing of it is, we do that without realizing it. And that's, that's a big part of this. They Over and over again, they're told, and if you're made aware of the transgression, mm-hmm. this is what you do. Well, the assumption is that you've probably messed up and you are unaware of it sometimes. And these are not, again, when we think about sins most of the time today, we think about, I know I ought to do A, mm-hmm. I have decided to do B, right? I know I ought not steal that $100 bill out of that person's pocket, but I really want it, so I take it. You know, that's that's normally the way we talk about sin today. And that's not bad, but biblically, the idea of sin is bigger. And sin is a condition that we have. And it's something that then shows up, it manifests. I like to talk about an illness and symptoms, right? And so the 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 thing of it is that a lot of those symptoms are not coupled with choice. You didn't you didn't in the moment make a decision to do a sin thing. Mm-hmm. You've you've erred in some way, behaved in a way that is dishonoring to God, whether you did it intentionally or not. And the burnt offering is kind of covering over the bits of that that you just don't know about or realize. What are we what were they supposed to do if they intentionally sinned? That's a great question. And there's a lot of disagreement among Christian scholars about that. Jewish scholars seem pretty well unified on the the general idea being that they were supposed to give offerings for the unintentional sins and hope for grace from Yahweh, which they received. The, the, the intent of their heart being the primary issue here. If they intentionally sinned and are genuinely repentant about it, they could feel confident that their sin would be forgiven by Yahweh. But if they intentionally sinned and were unrepentant about it, then their status as a covenant member was in danger. So there is no remedy for unrepentant sin. No, there is no remedy for unrepentant sin. And one of the um, one of the real tragedies here is, I mean, when I heard Leviticus talked about or taught about um, in church before I went to Bible college, uh, not not really in Bible. I was very blessed with my Old Testament professors in Bible college. Mm. But when I've heard other people talk about this in the past, it's been with the idea that they're just is no, um, you know, offering or, or, you know, ability to receive forgiveness from God if you've sinned intentionally. And that was because this is a heartless, graceless system mm-hmm. that the Jews had, that the Hebrews had to live under, where they had to follow all these laws or die. Mm-hmm. Um, and the, if, they, if they made a mistake, they were cut off from grace and they didn't know how to be forgiven. That is just not the way the, the Hebrews understood the system they were part of. Yeah. They knew that they were in a grace-filled relationship with Yahweh. 
and that they they counted on that grace over and over. And we see that at different times. David certainly talks about the sacrifice you want is a broken heart and contrite mm-hmm. spirit. You want yep. repentance. Jonah in the belly of a whale yep. offers, yep. gives, gives, he says, if you, if I could, if that's what you wanted, I would give it. Mm-hmm. But what you want is me to change. And the, they, they understood their relationship with Yahweh. But if they're the, the, the sacrifices are their duties as members of a covenant or treaty or whatever you want to call the relationship they have with Yahweh, we choose covenant. But in this case, it's more like a treaty. These sacrifices are listed as regular duties. So you have not willfully broken it. Mm-hmm. You, you are unable to meet the constant expectations of Yahweh. He knows that. So his justice is present because... There's a right way that things are supposed to be done, and you are you are unable to do them, but we're not going to pretend they didn't happen, right? The sins need to be taken care of. And then the grace of Yahweh. So here's how we deal with that. Why do they have to put blood on the altars? Mm, that's a really good question. So there's a lot of blood talk with the sacrifices, and blood is the, the life force. Um, it's connected to life. And they, they knew that, they believed that, that was the, the thing that um, signified life uh, for the well, Israelites. sure, if you, you know, take all the blood out of somebody, right. it's dead. they'll be dead. And if it's alive, it has blood in it, right? That's the, the way that they, they, I think, reasoned that. There's a scripture that refers to blood as life. Or it's later in life. Leviticus. Yeah. Um, but, um, and so the, the blood was cleansing. Like we think of blood being put on something as making it dirty, mm-hmm. right? If I if I went into your home and you said it was dirty, and so I just splashed blood just all over, spraying blood, you would not blood. feel like I was cleaning your house. In fact, you might be very upset with me. But for them, that was a a adding of life onto a thing that had been polluted by death. Mm-hmm. Um, sin being equated with mm-hmm. with death, we call it one of the henchmen of death. Mm-hmm. And so the the purpose of blood being put on the altar is an intentional. A pl- application of life upon a thing that has been polluted by death. How did the altar get polluted by death? So the altar is, in a lot of ways, something like a meeting place. Between, it's like the table that Yahweh and his people sit down for dinner at, right? Mm. And they're, they're, um, and that's where the meals would be prepared. You know, that's the mm. that's the that's the table of fellowship. Well, one side of that is a. Um, group of people, a tribe of people that are polluted by sin. And so when they when they worship with Yahweh, when they fellowship with him, when they approach him, when they're around him, uh, that that pollution of sin is present and it spreads. And so the the dealing with that, sort of like the burnt offering is taking care of of sinfulness, the the blood put on the altar is an application of life covering over, atoning for, the pollution of death. So there's a distinction again that Leviticus tells us between like this pollution and purification and uh, like transgression and forgiveness. Like they're separate. They're related obviously, but like those are separable kind of aspects of what's happening in the tabernacle. Like the people are being forgiven mm-hmm. for their breaking of violations yes. of the covenant. Whereas the altars are being polluted by mm-hmm. their sin, and so the altars have to be purified. 
Yeah. There's a lot of really cool words that we don't use a lot anymore. We kind of subsume them under under one idea of sin. Mm. But in the Old Testament, there's this word you'll see occasionally, iniquity, mm-hmm. it's translated as. And iniquity is not, it's seen as a synonym for sin, and it's not. Mm-hmm. It's, it's not, not the same thing. Yeah. Sin is the, the act. Iniquity is the effect, right? And so um, the effects of your sin are iniquities. What Leviticus tells us is that sin has this pollution factor. It's, it's part of the iniquity of sin. That, that the actual ground, the land, the people around you, all of it is affected by your sin. Mm-hmm. And that is a, a spiritual truth that's being relayed. But it also is just an incredibly practical one. Um, because we have this idea, I think, sometimes that we get away with things as mm-hmm. long as nobody finds right. out about it. Or if it's not hurting anyone else. Or if it's not else. hurting anyone else. Um, but we don't get away with things because at minimum, what's happening is something is happening inside of you, a turning and accepting mm-hmm. a, a movement. Um, we are always being spiritually formed, but we are being spiritually formed either towards Jesus or away from him. Mm-hmm. And that spiritual formation away from him has effects on mm-hmm. how we are around other people, how we are with the world that we interact with. And so the effects of sin ripple out, even if no one finds out about it. Mm-hmm. And so that, what what this is doing is it's teaching the people that their sin is not something they can ever get away with. It is a, a thing that has real consequences. And we see that played out in the, the story of scripture, the fall, right, happens. And all of a sudden the world is different. It's mm-hmm. a, infected by sin. Um, and as the Israelites live in, in connection or proximity to Yahweh, their sinfulness has these polluting effects on, on the people and, and places around them. And that has to be dealt with. Uh, it's interesting to me that, so when it talks about the guilt offerings, uh, that the sin of the high priest and the sins of the people go all the way into the altar of incense, which is right in front of the Ark of the Covenant, but mm-hmm. then the sins of chieftains and, and individual Israelites just go into the altar, the burnt offering altar, which is outside. Mm-hmm. And so how? what should we make of the fact that the high priest sin and the whole people's sin penetrates further, the pollution gets further into the tabernacle than yeah. just individual sins? Well, it's really neat symbolism. Um, there's, again... You read these these passages, and they can seem repetitive or or um, uninteresting. But man, there's so much going on. There's a couple of differences with the the priests' sins um, from the people's. When the priests off make burnt offerings for or not burnt offerings, but uh, guilt offerings for their sin, like nobody eats those. Mm-hmm. You know, there's no there's no the priests can't function as the representatives of Yahweh when they are being the people who are sinning, <laughs> right? So it is just given to Yahweh, and nobody eats it. Yeah. Um, but in this case, what's happening is, is a theme that runs through scripture that there is a, um, a, a cup, well, there's a couple things here, but an importance of being accountable differently, um, when you take on a specific role, being a priest or over God's people, that, um, the, the sinfulness is more dangerous and, uh, I don't want to say it's it's more sinful, but the effects can be greater, more polluting, more polluting. Yeah, because you think about you think about like when a mega mega church pastor, I almost said mega pastor, when your mega church pastor um, gets caught in some kind of terrible unrighteousness, mm-hmm. the effects that that has are much worse than just oh we need to find a new preacher for this mega church. Mm-hmm. So many people have been um, 
have looked up to this person, have trusted this person, have received from this person wisdom and teaching. And, and when they realize that the person who was doing that was actually untrustworthy, it shakes them to their core. You know, when that happens in a church of, of 30, that still matters. But when it's, when it's a, a megachurch pastor, you know, the effects are, are tremendous. Or mm-hmm. I think about Ravi Zacharias, who had such a powerful and profound ministry um, that I was blessed by, that I know a lot of people that were blessed by. And it just seems that he was a wicked man. And that was unknown. Um, these are things that we that have kind of come out since his death. Mm-hmm. But the the number of people who I think they've had their faith truly shaken by that um, is significant. And so if if I'm a if I'm a carpenter and I get caught in unrighteousness, that still matters. But that is not as likely to have a deeply um, evil or negative effect on the faithfulness of the people around me as a priest's unrighteousness would. Mm. And so it penetrates deeper because it's more dangerous. It's mm-hmm. it's more polluting. Uh, it's interesting that, you know, Paul talks about Jesus' death as a sin offering, and yet we eat that one. <laughs> like we we consume... Well, don't we do that too? <laughs> the uh, body and blood of Jesus, you mm-hmm. know, broken yeah. for us. It's just interesting, the change. Mm-hmm. You know, the, the Old Testament priests, nobody consumed their sin offering. It's true. Yeah, it's interesting. It's interesting how you took that because I was thinking more on the level of like that collective social sin is more polluting than individual sin, which is totally the opposite of how our society or it's conservative society to think well, I didn't, things. And I didn't talk about the collectiveness part of it, but yeah, that's true. No, and I, I, I think you were right and, and everything you said was right. Just that I, I, I was just kind of thinking about that as the, again, a difference in the way the Bible actually talks about and speaks about sin that often these social injustices or social sins are weightier they're more polluting than oops i you know individually did something i wasn't supposed to <laughs> sure and and the bible doesn't it's not one or the other right the bible doesn't say so your individual mistakes don't matter no it's just that the the corrective to us because i think that we there's a reason we keep Ooh. bumping up against political things uh-huh. <laughs> let's do it let's dive and in it's not because we're trying to be jerks it's just our lives are one thing there is no distinction really between i mean i know there's a separation of church and state in america which is a good thing but at the end of the day we just lead single human lives you know and and social lives that all these things are connected i feel like generally speaking for us for our community people have trouble like we we hyper focus on individual mistakes and we want to ignore any kind of social sin like Mm -hmm. anytime that's brought up we just said we have a very difficult time with it. Or we get caught up in thinking that it's the only thing that matters. Sure, There's, sure, sure, sure. We make both mistakes. Well, sure. I think that, but I'm saying I think our people yeah. tend to be more, we're going to focus on individual things. And since I don't do those, I'm a good person. But socially or or culturally, we might be bound up with sinful patterns and sinful thoughts and behaviors that we just don't want to pay any mind to. And Leviticus is telling us that those are actually more polluting than, mm-hmm. than the individual things. Uh, and kind of is keeping with this, so later on in chapter 5, it talks about the guilt offering that when you've wronged somebody else, you have to pay it back with interest on top of the sacrifice that you're making. Yeah. I, I have grown up hearing, well, so let me just put it this way, that forgiveness and restitution or forgiveness and, and human reconciliation with this sacrifice here are bound together. Like you can't. You can't just give your sacrifice to God and be like, all right, I feel better about that. I'm done. Like mm-hmm. there actually has to be some measure of restitution or, or reconciliation 
amongst you and and the people that you've harmed or the the individual that you've you've harmed yeah otherwise you're getting away with it i think it's just it's a rebuke to us and this attitude of like well all sin is really against just god so i don't have to deal with you know what's happened in her personally it's like no that's well see the way that it works what's meant to be said there is that the one who's made the decisions about how all this works is yahweh Mm -hmm. and we make a mistake when thinking that means that the only recipient or or victim of sin could be yahweh yahweh gets to decide how that works and it's clear that he's decided that you are you are responsible bound to um responsible for paying for the damages you've done to another person. And we all know that instinctively. When you are a teenager and you throw a baseball through someone else's window, you are expected to pay for it. <laughs> right. You don't just go home and, and play. You should. The, what, what, what are the Urim and the Thummim? So we hear about these in Exodus, and they show up again here in Leviticus as something that the high priest has with him. Um, they're inside the, the breastplate of the, the, um, the high priest. And those are... And correct me if I'm wrong, but those sound like those are plural words in Hebrew. Like words that end with an I-M generally. Mm-hmm. It's a plural. Generally. Pluralization. But we have no clue what these things were. Uh-huh. And so anything is supposition. Those can be singular words sometimes. Okay. Um, and if they encompass the whole of a category. I see. And so, so it could be that they're single things. They could be multiple things. But there's some... Some idea that's gained um, or, or thought that's given that something that was common in ancient religions was the seeking um, of binary questions and answers from from a deity. Like right? a yes, no. Yes, no, innocent, guilty, left, right. I mean, mm-hmm. whatever the case may be. And that the Urim and Thummim were tools used in discerning the will of Yahweh. Um, there's an Akkadian resource, which is a, another ancient culture, that talks about something similar to this. And they would ask a deity a question, and if the the correct one, so like one rock would be white and one black, if the, the and put in a bag and shaken up, and if the the correct one is drawn out three times in a row, then that is the deity saying that answer. If it wasn't three times in a row, it was no answer. That's not from the Bible. That's another ancient culture. But we think that the Urim and Thummim were something like that. Now we don't have recording. Uh, a recording of them being used mm-hmm. to discern God's will. And so I don't know that we we think that the high priest used these. They were symbolic of being a, being the the person who was responsible for relaying God's will to his people. He held them in his um, like close to his heart. And so the the idea being that they somehow helped with discerning God's will and they went with him, not that he would pull them out and use them, but that he now personified the person that was supposed to help discern Yahweh's will for the people. So since there's a lot of uh, parallels to Mm -hmm. other cultures in almost a sense of like what we would say divination, right? Mm -hmm. Like it's a tool, it's a divination tool. Could it somehow be that the priests took these things because they didn't need, they weren't to use like divination things because they know the will of Yahweh, like because revealed of the in the law, Absolutely. revealed in the tabernacle. I just had that thought yeah. of like, huh, you would think that they would like, so destroy them. <laughs> oh, no, because, you know, but symbolize... just but like, but we're ta- I'm, I'm going to hold them now because we have a different, we have a new way or we have a better way of discerning yes. the will of well, the Well, we can be sure of creator. is if they were divination, divination stones of some kind, 
the high priest is not supposed to use them or he wouldn't tuck them away inside of his breastplate. He'd carry them in a bag at his waist, which yeah. is how most of these other religions yeah, did that. Yeah, because we don't have any, any None. Uh, record of, of them being used. It yeah. is it, His holding them is symbolic. And it's telling something to Yahweh's people hmm. that this is the place where you go for discerning Yahweh's will, hmm. which is a big deal because we're we're like ten chapters from Aaron really right. messing up Yahweh's will. Yeah. Uh, this is a big change and a big responsibility given to him. Hmm. All right. So last thing. Last, last thing. thing. Hit me. <clears throat> so the priests are being readied for their ministry they're being dedicated and and uh ordained is a word that mm-hmm. we might use in, in contemporary and so they take all this stuff uh bread and meat and everything else they offer it up as a as an elevation offering it says so i was just kind of struck by this that that picture of like that they are taking kind of the fruits of human labor they're offering them back to to god and so for us First Peter says that we're all, we all share in this priestly ministry, Exodus 19, the mm-hmm. whole nation was supposed to be a kingdom of royal priests. It's like, just your thoughts, last thought here, of just like, what is it, what does it look like for 21st century American people to kind of share in this priestly ministry in 30 seconds or less? <laughs> so I preached a sermon on this in 2019. Oh yeah. And yeah. Uh, it was one of my favorites I've ever preached. Um, I think it was over 40 minutes long, so it was one of your least favorites I've ever preached. What does this mean for us to be priests today? I think that every Christian is responsible for being a place of contact between the world around him and Yahweh. Mm. And so that's one of the reasons why our behavior matters so much, one of the reasons why our becoming holy matters so much, why our engaging with the Word of God and being transformed by the Holy Spirit to be more like Jesus matters so much because each and every one of us is a place of contact between Yahweh and the world, uh, a vessel through which Yahweh wants to teach about his love and his goodness, his desire, uh, a life-giving thing rather than a life-stealing thing. Um, and that's the responsible of every Christian, uh, responsibility of every Christian. That's not just for pastors to do. That's not just for people that have gone to church for decades to do. That is for every believer um, to be um, a representative of Yahweh to the people that we encounter. This has been Ben and Clayton Eat the Bible. Stay hungry, my friends. Ben and Clayton Eat the Bible is a podcast ministry of Calvary Community Church. All contents are under copyright. Our theme music is by Alex Productions. Any thoughts and opinions are solely mine and Clayton's. Have you seen the AI-generated VeggieTales Book of Revelation concept art? <laughs> no. Look it up right now, and we'll record your reaction live. Ooh. <clears throat> the, I think oh, the- my gosh! <laughs> <laughs> Why are their tongues hanging out? The horse the ho- radishes. Oh, my gosh. Why does his face look like a butt? The New Jerusalem with the giant artichoke. Do you see that? <laughs> <laughs> Oh gosh, the woman! What? what? She doesn't have any arms no, like all of them don't. But that no because she's so person-like, it's really weird. That is a busty asparagus. <laughs> <laughs> the fallen! Oh, the fallen angels! I will take one salad, Barb. <laughs>